our passage today is from Colossians chapter 4, and I will read it from the handout because the print is bigger. Here's the word of God, Colossians 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So we are continuing with our sermon series on what happens now, meaning following Jesus' resurrection, how is God at work, and especially how is he at work through his people to make known the good news of Jesus. That's, that's where we're at. And today, I've been looking a lot, and I'm not going to talk as much about it this time, but we've been looking at this, this illustration, the fishers of men. And it comes from the, the call that Jesus gave to his disciples, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And that God gives his people the opportunity to, to bear witness, to draw people into faith in Christ, to fish for people and, and invite them to be a part of what he is doing, invite them to come onto the ship. And so the question we've been thinking about is how do we work together for this mission? How does God use us as a congregation especially is the focus of our thinking in the work of that mission? So I've been illustration of being a fisher of men. And I remember a teenager brought up something once and says, well, isn't there a problem with this metaphor? Like what happens to the fish? Not necessarily a good thing to be fished for. And, you know, um, and so we kind of, it's a metaphor, of course, so it has its purpose. But thinking that through, God wants people to join willingly. Like, God could make everyone believe. He could force everyone into a relationship with him. But he is, in his sovereignty, he has chosen to, to be invitational in how he responds to people. He wants it to be received willingly. There's an old term and frankly, I don't know if it's politically correct or not. So please inform me if, I've, if, if, if you don't think it is. I, I ran it by my Chinese friend who, um, he, didn't, he wasn't familiar with it, but I, I wondered if it was a term they ever heard. But, it, but maybe you heard the term Shanghai, right? It comes from the time of the British sailors where they found out Shanghai was a dangerous place to, to drink too much because they were always in need of crew members and, you know, you go to a bar and you drink too much, you, you might wake up on a ship and you were shanghaied onto a crew that you had not planned on being on. But God does not want people shanghaied 
into the faith. He wants them to to willingly come to to say, yes, I want to follow you and know you and have you in my life. No one is meant to be forced into the kingdom of God. No one should be tricked into it in some way. Unfortunately, in the history of the church, there's times where we did sort of force people to convert or acted as if people had no choice in the matter. But God wants to draw people in. Jesus said in John John 12, this, this great line, he says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. I will draw all men and women to myself. Meaning this, because of what he would do on the cross in giving his life, and ultimately because of that he would be placed in a position where he could offer salvation, he would draw people to himself. He would invite people in, and through the Holy Spirit at work in people's hearts all around the world, he would be working to draw people to put their faith in him. That is the plan. That's what he's about. We just get to be a small part of that, that work that he's doing of drawing people to himself. The Apostle Paul um, wrote to the Corinthians about the, the ministry that he had been given. And it's really interesting to, to take note what he emphasizes in chapter 4. So he's, he's writing... And he talked about, it says, we have this ministry by the mercy of God, right? And, and we don't lose heart. We, the ministry we have is, is from God's mercy. He picked us to do what we're doing. And his ministry was to go to new places and talk to people about Jesus and tell them the gospel message and invite them into faith. Um, but the key is, he says, how he operates it. He wanted to make something very clear. Let me read this part. It says, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Do you see what he's saying? He says, we don't want to be underhanded in how we present the message. We don't want to trick anyone into accepting Jesus. We don't want to oversell it. Right? We, we don't want to, you know, over-promise. We want to make clear what it means. That Jesus is the best thing that we could ever offer anyone. But, but sometimes we get so zealous in our desire to, to, to sell Jesus, we might present him wrongly. And he says, no, we, we want to proclaim the truth. And, and so that our conscience is clear that we don't have to worry about how we, how we told people that we tricked them into believing in some way. Um, and he says, yes, the, the, the gospel is veiled. They have trouble seeing it. It's, it's difficult because the God of this age, meaning the devil, has blinded the minds of, of non-believers and they can't see that, that light that's so clear to us. But he says, here's what God does. He says, so, so what we do, we proclaim Christ. We talk about Jesus and what he did. Jesus was the most attractive, amazing person who's ever lived because he was not just a person. He was, he was fully human but fully God. We talk about Christ and the good news of Christ and what he did and we, about ourselves. We simply say, Jesus Christ is Lord and we are your servants. That's how we approach this. 
And guess what? God said the light shines out of the darkness. He has come into our life. And even in the struggles we have, even in the darkness that sometimes we struggle with, God's light shines out of it. He uses us despite ourselves sometimes. It's not that we're perfect. It's not that we have it all together always. Sometimes people who love God struggle with depression and anxiety. That aspect of of being not being underhanded, not trying to trick people into it, but having them come to the point where they see it and willingly step in to a relationship with Christ for themselves. So sticking with our, our fishing analogy, what's the bait? What does God use? Well, at one point Jesus told his followers, he said two things to him. He says, you are the light of the world, and you are the salt of the earth. That you are, um, the light of the world is, is something we've been kind of talking about in the sense of we proclaim the message, we make known Jesus. And, and I, I believe he plants congregation as lampstands, as places that people who are seeking God, he can lead them. As he draws them to herself, he can lead them to this place where they will hear the truth. They will hear the message of the good news. They will hear the gospel and the the word of God proclaimed. So we become, by gathering together, we become a lampstand. So that's one part of the equation. But what about you are the salt of the earth? Christians are meant to be distinctive in their life, in their, their relationships, in the things that we do and say. There's meant to be a quality to us that distinguishes us from the world. We are distinctive. That's what it means to be salt. When you put salt on something, it, it sticks out. It's, it's, it tastes different. It, it, it brings out the, the, the best things. Uh, and so there's three aspects to being the salt of the earth. First of all, it, it happens as we are in part of a congregation. Note it says you are the salt of the earth. The you is plural. So you would really say you all are the salt of the earth. It happens not just because we're individually quirky, you know, or we decide we're going to be kind of odd or weird and that'll, that'll get people's attention. No, it's, it's, it's a quality of us together. It's not just our individual quirkiness. It's Christ at work in us as a body. The second aspect of the distinctive taste of our lives. The salt has to do with with how we respond to so many things in life. What what makes Christians salty? You can think of um, things the world doesn't do like forgive, forgiveness. We, we, the, in the, in the, among, followers of Christ, we we talk about grace. We believe that we have freely received, so we freely give. That's weird, right? That's different. You know, the things that mark our lives. It's not just that we're so good, people see how good we are. We do do avoid things and, and say no to things the world jumps into because we know better, but it's also that quality 
of our interactions with one another. And we work through relationships. We offer grace and forgiveness to one another. We, we learn to listen more than we talk. There's, there's various ways in which Christian, Christians are distinctive in their life. And as we learn to follow Jesus, we become more and more distinctive from the people of the world. So that's the, the first part. So first is we're in this together. The second is the distinctiveness. And the, the third part is of the earth. That we're salt of the earth. We, we don't separate ourselves from the rest of the world. We are living in and interacting in the people of this world. There have been times where Christians have separated themselves. You, you might think of the Amish, right? We, we want to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world, so we, we separate, we carve out our own little Christian world where we don't have to interact with them. Then you're not the salt of the earth any, any longer. We have to be of the earth, engaged with the people around us. That's why Michelle's story was perfect. Just how does she engage the people in her neighborhood and being a part of that? That, Jesus said, is the plan. You will have these distinctive lives that will mark you as one of mine, that will mark you as different. And that will be part of how the Lord works through his people. Um, I had a different message in mind originally. But I was given a book. And so if, if you don't like what I'm saying, blame Greg Bandy. Um, he gave me the book. But it caught my attention, and, I was, and, and it asks a question right in the first chapter, and it's simply this. Are, is every believer meant to be an evangelist? So are we all evangelists? So let's just start with something. Let's do some, like, word, word and images. When I when you just think of the word evangelist, what comes to mind? Billy Graham. Absolutely. I knew that was coming. A tent? tent? Tent revivals. Yep. What else comes to mind when you think of evangelist? Cardboard signs. Any other images or words? So tracks, Bible tracks, sawdust trail. Okay, there's so many, I don't know them all. But um, there's all kinds of internet, or the, in the old times it was televangelists, right? Television evangelists. Now we have YouTube evangelists, I'm sure. Yeah. Any other thoughts come to mind? Corner preachers. Does anyone have any negative impressions of what an evangelist is? What? By the collar? Gotcha by the collar? I guarantee you people in the world, if you, you say the word evangelist, they're going to think scandal. They're going to think money. They're going to think obnoxious. They're going to think flashy. You know? I pushy. So, um, I mean, it, it's good we have positives because there are, God, obviously Billy Graham is a great example of the best that, that, you know, evangelism can be. 
But are we all called into that role of evangelists? And, and uh, Michael Frost, in his book, uh, he's talking about that, and he says that some, you know, he's been in situations where um, that that was the expectation, that you would be... Um, but I fear, he says, that, that every Christian is evangelist is something that's been expected. So here's a, here's a quote. He says, are we really all evangelists? Certainly the vast majority of Christians I know don't feel much like evangelists. It's as if we're being told that even though we don't believe we're evangelists and don't perform very effectively when we act like evangelists, we are nonetheless deep down in our bones really truly evangelists who just need to step into our true identities and fulfill our calling to share Christ with others. Is this fair? And more importantly, is it true? And so to think about that, I want to go to our main passage. And he talks about this. The Bible clearly affirms that some have a gift of evangelism or are gifted to be evangelists. And to be an evangelist in the Bible terms simply means you're gifted at going to people um, outside the faith and sharing the good news with them and engaging them with the truth and connecting with them and that you, you are called to do that intentionally, to seek opportunities. So looking at Colossians chapter 4, Paul is writing and he starts with these instructions. He says, he's writing to the, the Christians in Colossia Colossa, it's a, it's a Greek city. And these are people he, he actually, he, this is not a church he started. So it's a little different relationship, but he's still trying to guide them in their application of the faith. And he says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So he's saying, be, be prayerful, be, be joyful in your, your prayers and in your life. And then he asks, for something for himself. He says, at the same time, pray for us. Um, pray that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on which account I am in prison. Paul had been sent as an evangelist, sent out city to city to start new new ministries, start new churches. He'd go, and he would go and and he would pray God would open a door for, for ministry. And he's asking the, these believers to, to pray for him as he does that. So he does display the role of a, an evangelist. And um, he's actually in prison right now. You know, and, and he's being held um, because of all the situations. But says he doesn't ask, note, he doesn't ask him to pray that he would get out of prison. What does he pray? Open a door. He, he actually found that being a prisoner actually opened up new doors for ministry. The, the soldiers had to stay with him. And so he could tell them about Jesus. And it just opened up all kinds of opportunities. And, and he says, Play it, pray that I get to declare the mystery of Christ. Meaning the good news of Jesus that's now revealed in the gospel. And he says, pray that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So he wants to be able to, to clearly proclaim. So then. What would you expect Paul then to say for the Colossians themselves? Having said, pray that I would now have an open door to go out and proclaim Jesus amongst people. 
what would you naturally think he would then ask, you know, suggest that they pray for themselves? Wouldn't it make sense that he might say, um, now pray, you know, now you go and you start proclaiming um, Christ right where you, in your city. But that's not what he says. It's interesting he goes from there to um, instead walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Or another way to say it is be wise in the way you approach those outside the faith. Making the best use of the time. Or another translation, making the most of every opportunity, opportune times. What's he saying? Walk wisely in how you live out in your community, how you interact with the people in your city. You don't necessarily need to go and get on a soapbox and start proclaiming, but, but have your eyes open. Be watchful. Be prayerful. Connect with people. You know, show the faith in how you treat them. Be wise in, in, in that, that interactions. And when God opens the door... Make the most of it. Be ready to share in those times. That seems to be the strategy he's advocating for. Similar to you are the salt of the earth. Your distinctiveness of your life will get noticed. You'll look different than people and they're going to ask you about it eventually. And then he says, let your speech always be gracious. What you say and how you say it matters a lot. And that graciousness of, of how you talk about things. Uh, Christians aren't always gracious sometimes when we get in the mix of those things. We, you know, we, we can be so intent on getting people to understand that we're, we don't always treat them with grace. Be always gracious, seasoned with salt. In other words, don't take off the, the, the cap and dump the salt on, right? Seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer each person. How are you going to know how to answer each person? My book just dropped. How do you know? You listen first. You get to know them. You know what their concerns are. There's a phrase in my old organization that I had, we had in Young Life. We, it says, we earn the right to be heard. You're able to share the gospel much more effectively when people have had, they know you care enough because you've listened to their stories, you've listened to their concerns, what their heart is, what they're thinking about. And you're actually far more able then to speak into their lives in the right way in that, in that mode. So some are called to be evangelists. And to seek out and open doors. And the Lord gives to the church those with that gift. Those that love doing that. Those who are good at that. And those who are bold in how they approach people and can just get those open doors. But not all are given that gift. All believers are called to live distinctive lives that open questions. Or open, open the door for questions. And so his Michael Frost chapter is living a questionable life, right? Meaning our lives are such 
that eventually, as we get to know people, they're going to ask us, why do you believe that? Why do you do this? Why do you, how, how, how are you holding on when you're going through such a struggle in life? How do you have such joy? Or why, why do you guys have such good relationships? You know, it's going to open the door for conversations. I told you I'd change my, my sermon because of this book, but I, I, I still want to get a component of my, my original sermon was going to focus on three leaders in the church, in the early church, Peter, James, and Paul. And each of them had a different mode, a different focus in how they approached the mission. And so let me just highlight each of the three real quick. And so Paul is the one I already just talked about, the one that would go from city to city to to start new churches. He was out and out. He was the fisherman, right? He would go and, and boldly declare Jesus and look for open doors. He was the evangelist. His focus was the people out in the water, if you're using my illustration. He was focused on the people out in the water, determined to take the good news to them. And that was Paul. Now, interestingly enough, the letters we have are him writing back to Christians who later, uh, you know, giving them instructions on how to live. So he, it's not that he didn't care what happened on the boat, but his heart. He says, it has always been my ambition to preach Christ where it has never been preached before. He always wanted to see, oh, there's people way out there that haven't heard Send me, Lord. Open the door. He wanted to go to Spain. We don't know if he ever got there. But, uh, you know, that, that was his heart. In contrast, James, another very important leader in the church. This is not James, one of the 12 apostles. That James is actually martyred early on. It's actually James, the half-brother of Jesus. So he was one of the family of Jesus. I know sometimes I say that word and, and the head of former Catholics explodes, right? Jesus had brothers and sisters. James was one of them. And he became an important leader in the church in Jerusalem. And we don't know as much about James, but he wrote, he wrote a letter or a book to believers. And if you read that book, you see that his focus is very much on how we treated one another within the church. His focus was on the functioning of the ship and how people respond to one another. He says, how people will respond to the gospel depends a lot on how you act and treat one another. He he talked about be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. His focus was on how do you receive someone when they come visit church? It wasn't go out and get them. It was be, be aware of the relationships you have. Are we, are we taking care of people, taking care of those in need, or are we brushing them off? Um, nowhere in his letter does he say, go out and preach. He says, how you respond to one another. That was the heart of James. It's an important part of the work of Christ. It's how we are distinctive in our relationships with one another. And then the third leader is Peter. Now, in some ways, you could say Peter was in between Paul and James in that he, he, both, he did go out and preach sometimes to new peoples, but he also stayed in Jerusalem and, and led the church from there. But what I would say, well, Paul was focused on the people outside the ship and James was focused on the, the relationships inside the ship. 
Peter was focused more than anything else on the direction of the ship. That the followers of Christ would be faithful in following Jesus where he was leading in their lives. He started as a fisherman, but Jesus turned him into a shepherd. And when he describes himself, he, he talks about being a shepherd. Leading the sheep where they're called to go. And at one point, Jesus gave him the instructions, take care of my sheep. So he was concerned with the direction that God's people would go, that they would do what Jesus was calling them to do. All three of these leaders see the, the, the tactic and highlight it. So, so Peter, in his gospel, talks about um, always be ready. Is that, do we have that on the screen? Uh, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. So in your hearts, set apart Jesus as Lord. The first thing you got to do is you got to be walking with him, living for him. And that, that's, that's crude. But in doing that, it says, always be prepared to give an answer for the one who asked you for the reason that the hope that you have. And do this with gentleness and respect. Does that sound like Colossians 4? Right? Be wise in how you act towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Be ready, be prepared. When you live a questionable life, a life that's distinctive because Christ is in you and you're following him, be ready for when people ask you and to be able to tell them about the Savior who came in and changed your life. Be ready to give that answer. Put the answer in the terms that fit your personality. I love how Christians are different enough that we're going to answer a question in different ways. That's, that's how God arranged it. He loves that we each have a... You're not just supposed to copy what someone else would answer, but that we would say it in a completely different way. And that's okay, as long as the focus comes back to the reason the hope we have is because Jesus is in my life. And that we do so with gentleness and respect. Jesus is already at work in the lives of people around us. He's already at work in the lives of non-believers. It's not our job to sell people on anything. It's not our job to convince people. We don't go into uh, this. We're, we're not all called to be evangelists, but we're all called to be evangelical in the sense that we are good news people. That's what the word evangelical means. We are good news people. We, we, we offer good news and we're ready with that and we're convinced that Jesus said, I'm, I will draw all people to myself. And so because of that, we try to live questionable lives. Lives that will spur questions. We want to be watchful and prayerful. So we, we keep our eyes open as we go into our relationships, whether it's at work whether it's out in our neighborhood, whether it's in a walking group, or whether it's with our roommate who, who uh, has a friend that asks, asks us a question, right? We're, we're, we're ready and watching for those open doors. Sometimes it's just to pray for someone. And sometimes it's to answer a question that's bothering them. And sometimes it's just to listen to them and, and so they know that someone cares. And when those, uh, God opens the opportunities... Make the most of it. 
point them to Jesus and the one who could save them. The, the last thought I want to answer, the, I want to think about the question Jesus actually asked, right? He says, you are the salt of the earth. If salt loses its saltiness, can it be made salty again? So I, I don't know the science answer for that. That'd be an interesting thing. Maybe, maybe one, one of you engineer types can think, think of that one out. But, um, but I think the religious answer is I think we're going to discover the truth of that question. I believe the church in America lost its distinctiveness. We lost our saltiness. That maybe it was because so many had joined churches that people lost the difference between what's, what's a believer in Christ, what's a church person, versus what's someone who's not a church person. It, it, I would say for most people outside the church, they didn't see much difference. And maybe we lost our saltiness. Well, how could God ever make us salty again then? Could it be that's what he's doing by shrinking the church? We talked last week about how the, the, mem- the numbers of people who are members of churches has gone down. Could it be that the only way to regain our distinctiveness is to allow cultural Christianity to die so that those who are engaged in regular worship are those who love Jesus and, and can't wait to live them, live them out in their lives? I'm just thinking. <laughs> so what does that mean for us? We hold faithful and we wait for the opportunities the Lord, the Lord opens to us. And we don't stress about the fact that the cultural scene is changing for Christians. We have Jesus, he's in charge, and he's at work in the lives of the people around us. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that, that you've included us in your plan. And even though the job of, of people coming to faith in you is it's your work in their lives that matters, that you let us be a part in that role. So Father, show us how each of us can can have those opportunities. Help us keep our eyes open when, we, when those kind of conversations arise that we're ready to give that answer. Give us confidence and boldness as we love the people around us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In closing, let's stand and sing together. Make the words of this song the prayer of our heart.